Hello and welcome to Talking Euretina, the official podcast of the European Society of Retina Specialists. I'm Jonathan McRae. In this podcast, we bring you expert discussions and interviews with leaders from the world of retina and beyond. We'll also keep you up to date with the latest news from the society. This week, we'll be talking about VR, specifically macula off retinal detachments, how they're defined and when to act. First, though, I hope you were able to attend the winter meeting in Vilnius this month. If not, plenty more opportunities to learn and connect on newretina.org. On March 30th, Dr. Patricia Uduondo from Valencia, Spain, will be hosting the next Uretina Case Club from Valencia. We will see cases from several centres in Europe presented by younger colleagues and discussed by Dr. Uduondo, Professor Mark Desmet of Mios in Lausanne, Switzerland, and Stella Vujicevic at the University of Milan in Italy. It's a great way to see the theory applied in practice and get real-life learning from real-life cases. That's the next Uretina Case Club from Valencia, hosted by Dr. Patricia Udaando, live on March 30th at 8pm CET. Registration will open soon on the Uretina website. All right, it's time for our expert discussion and a really interesting one uh, coming up. It's chaired by Professor Siegfried Priglinger, who is from the University Eye Hospital in Munich, LMU, and Ms. Roxanne Hillier from uh, Newcastle Eye Centre in the UK. They're in discussion with our faculty, Dr. David Royston from NHS Scotland in Glasgow and Dr. Julian Klaas from University Eye Hospital, Munich, LMU. They're going to be talking about RRD macula off, how we define that exactly, and crucially, when to start treatment. Siegfried and Roxanne, thank you so much for joining us. You're very welcome. Siegfried, over to you. Okay, dear colleagues and friends, it's a great, great pleasure to be back uh, together with Roxanne. It's my great pleasure now to, to welcome you to a new edition of our Euretina podcast with today's title, Macular Off-Retin Attachment, Prognostic Factors and Timing of Surgery. Today, we want to answer three questions concerning macular off-retin attachment. First question, how do we look at the macular? Second, how do we report macular off? And third, how do we interpret it in terms of management and timing of surgery? The first two questions will be covered by Julian Glass, paper published last year in I, and David Yorsten from Glasgow will then present his paper on functional results in macular off detachment, which was also recently published in I. So Julian, in recent years has dealt intensively with the question of how we handle the preoperative assessment of the macular status, what consequences a more or less precise documentation could have on our prognostic statements, and to what extent a pre- or interoperative OCT diagnostic could help to better define the status macular off, since it seems to make a big difference how exactly detached the retina is. So I ask you, Julian, what actually do we understand when you're talking about macular off retina attachment? Thank you, Ziggy, for your introduction. It's really an honor to be here with you and to present the short mini review we've published last year. So the first question you asked, how do we look at Makulov, was actually the starting point for the article and for our research. So we, we all know historically our diagnosis of Makulov is really purely a fundoscopy-based diagnosis. But during the last 20 years, the advancements of perioperative multi modal imaging modalities have led us towards a more detailed and morphology-based description of macular off. So we know a lot of different data by different uh, research groups uh, who have been published 
who have correlated visual outcomes after RD repair with preoperative OCD biomarkers. And I think we'll hear about some of these groups later. Baumann et al. was uh, the last two correlated the height of retinal detachment with post-operative outcomes. Uh, the extent of detachment was correlated several times, including by our, our own research group and also by Park et al. in 2018. So also the integrity of outer retinal layers and uh, maybe also the amount of intraretinal fluid seems to correlate with post-operative visual outcomes. So some of these preoperative biomarkers, uh, some more than others, seem to be quite relevant prognostic markers for our patients. So there is a reason to believe that the historic term macular off may not sufficiently reflect the variety of morphological phenotypes we are able to assess today. So even though we have all this data, we haven't reached any agreement yet on how the foveal status should be reported in macular off RD, neither in clinical nor in scientific practice. So this led us to the second question you asked, Siggy. How do scientific papers today that deal with Makulov actually report the foveal status? And are there any ways we, we should report them or we, we can do better at reporting them? So this is why we looked at 40 publications, which were published between July 2020 and April 2021, which had the keywords foveal off or Makulov. And we searched all the manuscripts for five key points. So I'm going to mention these five points. The first question we asked was, was the foveal status assessed by ophthalmoscopy only, or was OCT used, or was it specified at all how the foveal status of the macula of RDs was assessed? The second point was, did the authors specify the extent of detachment? If yes, that's the third point, how was the extent specified? So did they say three quadrants, four quadrants? Was it they specified by the height of detachment? They name grades of detachment or stages of detachment. The fourth point was which diagnostic modality was used to assess the extent of detachment. And the fifth point was, was there any nomenclature introduced to distinguish different types of macular of detachment, um, e.g., for example, foveal or foveal involving or macular involving retinal detachment. So we are aware this was only an exemplary surge of 40 publications, which were published in a randomly defined time frame. However, we still found a high variety in all five points raised, with about half of the included manuscripts were not specifying the extent of detachment at all, and roughly one-third uh, did not specify if OCT was used or not. And um, we believe as a result of this, we as retina specialists are confronted with a lot of studies, well-conducted studies, um, assessing a wide range of non-standardized parameters in non-standardized ways. This may possibly limit the way we, we can compare these different studies. So the last point we raised was the question if we if there are any ways we can classify the foveal status in a in a better way. So our review included a row of suggestions, different ways of nomenclatures, uh, also by, for example, by Bowden et al., which these are colleagues from Germany, and also one system by the group from the Netherlands around Jan van Mars. And they were proposing an ETDRS grid-based approach, which differentiates different degrees of foveal and macular detachment. And it's also included one by our own group, which we first presented in 2018 on Vienna's Oretina. So we personally applied this approach in a retrospective court study, but have not yet 
validated in the prospective study. We're planning to do this in the prospective registry here in Munich, and we're open for any suggestions. And uh, Roxanne already pointed, I had some great ideas how we can do this um, in, a, in a profound way. So summing up our review, we believe that a standardized nomenclature would be of great help on the one hand for a scientific purpose in order to make our research more comparable and to increase the quality of our research, but also on the other hand for clinical use to facilitate communication with our patients, maybe give them a prognosis on their individual outcome based on uh, preoperative morphological features. Um, Julian, I do praise you actually for identifying this sort of um, problem that's been neglected. And I think that the system that you have proposed is readily understandable and applicable. So in, in those regards, I definitely praise you and your team for that. I just Thank wonder, I'll be, I'll be devil's advocate here. Um, uh -huh. So do you think that when you see a detachment in clinic preoperatively, do you really believe that represents the extent of the retinal injury? So we know yeah. that intraoperatively or in the hours before clinic, yes. between clinic and theatre, we can get extension of fluid. And we also know that um, apoptotic cytokine pathways can be triggered mm. by ischemic retina that actually give you a margin of damage that's wider than detached retina. So those factors mean that what you see is perhaps not the full extent of the damage. And therefore, mm. I wonder if we should base our determination on whether the fovea is involved and to what degree on something more than a clinical examination. And I suppose my proposal would be that a modality that we sort of underuse would be on fast imaging of the retinal layers, which can detect mm. recent retinal damage and actually whether perhaps post reattachment on fast OCT to determine exactly how much of the retinal ellipsoid zone has been damaged, yes, yes. what proportion of the photoreceptors are damaged, whether that might be, you know, if you're thinking to validate this, whether that may make the correlations with final acuity more accurate. Absolutely. It's a, it's a great idea. And actually, on last year's Euretina, um, there was a very nice, uh, also a very nice short presentation in the speaker's corner by the group uh, in, of, of Bonn, from Bonn. And they um, actually, in the Macuster study, they um, developed a system where they can assess the relative reflectivity of the ELM versus the ellipsoid zone of the different photoreceptors layers. And they showed some very interesting post-operative findings, just as you pointed out, where you could retrospectively assess the amount of detachment by seeing that the previously detached retina had a reduced relative reflectivity of the ellipsoid zone. And in the B scan of the OCT, you thought this looks perfect, but in the fast imaging, you'll probably see this very well. So this is something we'll definitely incorporate. So, Roxanne, do you understand you correctly? You, you do not question the preoperative OCT, but you question the type of OCT, which we should do. Um, no, I think the preoperative OCT is of value, but I think what you, the structural damage that we see in the clinic may not represent ultimately the retinal damage that has taken place, either by extension of hmm. the fluid intraoperatively as part hey. of the... So even um, intraoperative OCT wouldn't help? I guess intraoperative OCT maybe is 
not practical or available, but it's possible. Yes, potentially. Um, I think the issue about cytokine pathways, because you know there are cases, uh, there are series in the literature of macula on detachments where people get metamorphopsia and etc. And that's that's something's going on there. Mm. And a surgeon can swear the fovea stayed on, but there is still something going on. So I, th I think there is a margin of tissue injury that's wider than the gross detachment. That may be variable. We don't fully understand it. Uh, what I would suggest is that our regular OCTs that we can use in the clinic can be used um, in a much more versatile way than we're used to doing. So, for example, a reasonably high resolution OCT, if we look at it on FAS and look at the mm -hmm. ellipsoid zone, which we can do, we don't do, but we can do, that will actually define exactly where the damage has taken place. So, you know, again, we, we would have to look into validating all this a little bit more. But uh, I, I, th I, th I think the system proposed is, is superb and it's a big step in the right direction. I suppose I'm just thinking about how it could be made even better. That's a great suggestion. Julian, do you think uh, we could also already answer some questions better right at the moment? Uh, so, for example, such as uh, how long can we wait in case of macular off if we had already started documenting our pre-op status better? I mean, I think it, it would be a lot, um, some of the studies which we're going to talk about now, I think a lot of the data we, we see published is just lacking any details on preoperative morphology. And it would, would just be so interesting if any um, duration of macular detachment and uh, correlated to postoperative visual outcome, if this would have correlated to preoperative morphology and morphological markers of apoptosis and of photoreceptor damage. So I think, yes, it would definitely advance the knowledge uh, we already have. Yes. So uh, it looks like we all agree on the topic and we can proceed already, <laughs> uh, which probably makes really sense because it's probably the most important question, David. How do we interpret Makarov? How do we manage it? In other words, when would you, David, take your patient to the surgery room if the foveo was detached, but the rest of the macula was still attached? For example, if a patient comes on Friday afternoon, can we wait for three days? Can we wait until Monday? Will it be, I'm looking forward to hear your data from last year's paper and I, David. One of the things that, uh, we, that I notice is that we tend to assess whether or not the macula is on and the extent of the retinal detachment by clinical examination. But when you do an OCT, you find that the subretinal fluid invariably extends for some distance beyond what you think is the limit of the detachment. And for example, in the Beavers database, we originally classified the fovea as being on or off or bisected, but we dropped the bisected option because we discovered that whenever you think it's bisected actually it's off there's fluid all the way under the fovea and i'm sure that you're right we should be using oct more often particularly if there's any doubt about the state of the fovea how would you set about classifying it preoperatively when you've got a very bullish superior detachment and you can't see the fovea do you treat that as macular off or macular on or do you wait until the operation and you get rid of the bullets. I wonder the same. We are better. Yeah, you have to do the, the interoperative OCT. <laughs> so everybody, <laughs> now we have a reason for the interoperative OCT, finally. <laughs> finally. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I have a rule of thumb in those situations. It's not 100% accurate, but it's quite useful. Uh, I look at the 
the horizontal meridian, the meridian will fold it temporally. And if the fluid extends below that, then the macula is usually off. If the fluid does not extend below the horizontal meridian in the far temporal periphery, then there's a chance the macula is still on and you treat it as a macula on. Oh, that's a good trick. Yeah, it's a good one, actually. We'll validate it with a post-operative on fuss. Yes. And see <laughs> if it was actually on. <laughs> that would work. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, David, now let's focus on the third question. Um, we're really looking forward to hear your data, what you published last year from the Bivas uh, group concerning the functional results in Makhlouf detachment. Yes, this is a, a paper looking at about 2,000 uh, retinal detachments that were macular off at presentation and had been treated by vitrectomy and internal tamponade. And we just looked at the risk factors, the preoperative and intraoperative factors that might affect the visual acuity. And uh, we found a, a fair number of them. Uh, including the age of the patient. Unsurprisingly, younger people do better than older. Uh, gender, men do better than women. And uh, the extent of the detachment, total detachments do badly compared to subtotal detachments. Preoperative vision, the better the preoperative vision is, the better the final outcome is. Uh, if there's PVR, particularly PVR grade C, or, uh, then they tend to do badly. But most of these things are kind of set in stone at the time of presentation. You can't influence whether or not somebody's got a total detachment. If they've got a total detachment, they've already got it. Uh, and you just have to make the best of it. Uh, the things that we found that weren't potentially modifiable was the duration of the detachment. And secondly, whether or not the eye was pseudophagic. Thank you so much for the summary. I mean, um, it's fantastic data and the numbers obviously superb I mean what I found very interesting was and I if I interpret correctly that there in the early days of the detachment there was no defined tipping point whereby you know one should get in before a certain point and and pragmatically 72 hours was I mean the your best estimation is that right well if you go back even further to when I was a, a vitro-retinal fellow and possibly even Professor Priglinger was a vitro-retinal fellow and can think back that far. Then the teaching was macula on detachments are urgent, but macula off detachments, well, that ship has sailed. There's no particular urgency. Do them whenever you can. And the Bill Ross and Cozy's paper uh, suggested that so long as you did them within a week, the results weren't very different if you did them within 24 hours or seven days. And of course, uh, that made life much, much easier for VR surgeons. So we all seized on that and believed it totally for about yeah. 15 years. And it's only in the last few years that we began to question that. And that started with Ellen Lahaz's meta-analysis of studies that are done of scleral buckling and outcomes. And she showed that uh, eyes were more likely to get 615 or better, so 0.4 logmar or better, if they were operated on within the first 72 hours. So what that, in your data sort of pointed to that 72-hour sort of recommendation? Well, what we had to do in order to get sufficient numbers was we we bunched together the, the data, we grouped the data. So rather yeah. than each individual day, we took not to, to two days, the first 72 hours, then three to four days, five to seven days, seven to ten to eight days, and so on. Yeah. 
that way you showed a fairly clear trend. But the problem is that once you get beyond seven days, the number of patients with e within each day is relatively small, and the graph is going all over the place because the, the confidence limits are pretty wide. But if you put the, the data together as, as, and group them, then there's a very clear trend. Okay, because I, I actually f I found confirmed that uh, when, I, when I listened to your talk, I saw the graph where you showed that the wish acuity is even better on, uh, if the, the, the retina is only detached for 40 to 24 hours. Uh, so this is not this is quite exploration, not a real not real data. Our data doesn't show that because we didn't have enough. You know, okay. Okay. the NHS takes a little while for people to get their retinal detachment surgery, and we didn't have enough patients who had a history of less than twenty four hours loss of vision. Mm -hmm. So we still so we still have to prove it. I mean, I've come upon some animal studies and some smaller, much smaller clinical series that suggests that the damage initiated by the detachment, if it's reversed within 24 hours, that you can get near normal uh, cellular <laughs> reconstruction, so to speak, mm -hmm. regeneration and acuity. And it's not what we want to hear. And it would have great service implications. But I sort of put it to you that whether we're now at the stage of thinking, as you say, a complete paradigm shift from, from 15 years ago, where actually a macula that's been off for less than 24 hours becomes more of an urgency than a macula on? Yes, I think that's true. And uh, we wrote an editorial in I last year that suggested that we should reorder the way in which we, we do mac uh, retinal detachments. There's the high-risk macula on, which is retinal detachments with a supratemporal break, uh, where the fluid is approaching the macula, then those are at high risk of becoming macular off, and we should treat them very promptly. And then there is the recent macular off detachment within the last 72 hours that there seem to be real benefits from getting them reattached very quickly. They should be done urgently. And then you've got the, the low-risk macular on detachment. So it's a nasal detachment, so it's an inferior detachment, and they can probably wait a little bit. And then you've got the long-standing macula off detachments, the patients who have lost vision weeks ago and finally turned up with their retinal detachment, and they, again, are, are the least urgent. To what degree does, um, we've alluded to it before, I think Julian did, to what degree does depth of macular subretinal fluid, even if it's informally or subconsciously, feed into your decision-making? Do you try and deal with a bullous Mac-off ahead of a shallow Mac-off, for example? I think it does affect it because one of the interesting things, and I'd be interested to hear Julian's view on this as well, uh, is that the, the I'm sure that there is a relationship between the pre-op visual acuity, the duration of the macular off detachment, and the depth uh, or extent of the macular off detachment. And we know that the better the pre-op vision, the better the final vision. We know that the shorter the duration, the better the final vision. And we know that the shallower the detachment, the better the final vision. Uh, and it's the interaction between those three things, uh, which is why I, I don't think we can say with absolute certainty, earlier mm. surgery is responsible for the better outcomes. It may be that these eyes were going to have a better outcome anyway, 
because there was a shallower detachment, there was less damage to the photoreceptors. I think that's a really very important fact, and maybe Julian could comment on that, because we know that if it's a very shallow detachment, it makes a big difference to, to a detachment which is a little bit higher. Julian, you want to yeah. give your data? I think, um, depending on the study we look at, sometimes the preoperative visual acuity, if you have a multi-factorial statistical analysis, then you, you throw in preoperative OCT and then the, the visual acuity slides into the background as predictive factor, or you put in height of detachment and then the extent of detachment maybe slides back to the background. So I think the key question is, which is uh, either we choose a pattern of different factors, which will predict us uh, very exactly any outcome, because they all, as David pointed out, they all, play into each other they're all on the same they all relate to each other so it's really the most important uh, question is which one is the one which is uh, which shows us in an objective and comparable manner when we should treat our patients and i think that's that's really it so so in our study for example because it was a retrospective cohort study um we published in Graphe in our study, the duration of macular detachment was not significant because the quality of this parameter was just not good enough. So the visual acuity was, went into the background and the extent of detachment was the most important factor. And we found that only slight foveal detachment, so in, in Britain, I think you call it bisected, was um, the outcome was much, much better. Almost 90% were able to to reach uh, reading visual acuity after three months, whereas where you had a G5 detachment, so a complete macular detachment, only roughly 50% reached reading ability after three months. But the follow-up was only three months, so yeah, this, this is the data we have. I think three months follow-up is pretty good, Julian. I wouldn't knock that. Three months isn't bad at all. I think the thing that I come back to is what's modifiable. You know, what is yeah. under the control of the VR surgeon? We can't control the depth of the macular detachment or the extent of the macular detachment, nor can we control the preoperative visual acuity. But we can mm -hmm. control, to some extent, the length of time for which that macula is detached. One thing that uh, is just a, another paper that's come out recently as a, a kind of meta-analysis of these done by the group in Toronto by Rajiv Muni and his colleagues, and what they showed was that there is a very clear relationship between a shorter duration of macular off detachment and better final visual acuity. But what was interesting is they didn't show any clear relationship between the amount of visual improvement and a shorter duration. Mm. So that implies that the better visual outcome you get with a shorter duration might be due to the fact that the visual acuity is better in these eyes to start with. And I think the, the next project that we're going to be looking at in the Beavers database is looking at the change in vision after successful reattachment of the macula and whether that is influenced by the duration. Because if that is greater with a shorter duration, that makes the case for earlier intervention much stronger. If it's not any greater, then if the vision's hand motions, there's not a great deal of benefit from early surgery. If the vision is still 636, then you need to get on and fix that very quickly. 
-hmm. So we look forward to getting the results of that, uh, I hope, later this year, maybe in time for your retina. So it's clear that it's multifactorial and that we should probably be thinking much more carefully about our macular off cases than we did in times gone by. So what, what do you think we need to do? How are we going to manage all of these um, acute macular off cases? I think it would be wonderful if we got lots of acute macular off cases. Uh, in practice, very often the presentation is delayed. Jan van Meurs did some interesting work asking patients uh, when their macula had come off and getting quite a wide variety of considerable uncertainty. And, you know, we think of retinal detachment as being sudden loss of vision, that the eye suddenly goes black. I don't think that's how patients experience it. And they are quite vague about the time. And I think, Julian, that's possibly why with the relatively small numbers in your study, you didn't find duration to be a significant factor in determining the final visual acuity. It's rather yeah. fuzzy data. Okay. But the, the fuzzy data is definitely a problem. Anyway, I think coming back to the 72-hour question, so can we wait the weekend long or not? Mm -hmm. I think to all we know, we agree that there's a correlation between uh, the duration of detachment and the damage. I think we agree. So David and Roxanne, maybe to all of us, imagine you had an, a detachment, you are on a skiing tour coming back on Friday, and then Richard Cuda was quite okay in the mountain that he come down. And at the end, you realize no more reading possible. It's Friday yeah. afternoon, you can get to the department, uh, eye department, and they tell you, you know what, macular off, no problem. We wait 72 hours of time we have. Let's come back on Monday morning. Yeah. Would you call me to come in? Or would you, would you stay relaxed and say, go back home, listen, some interesting podcasts uh, and do search <laughs> on Monday morning? <laughs> this is going to be really, really embarrassing, this answer. But the in Glasgow, we're not allowed to operate at weekends. Uh, because they cannot staff the operating theatres. So if that happened to me, I would get my wife to drive me to Newcastle <laughs> and I would be banging on Roxanne's door and saying, please put a bubble in my eye, at least to tide me over until Monday. <laughs> uh, it's the inconvenient truth, isn't it? It's what you can achieve yeah. in practical terms versus what is the absolute best. Because I think... Yeah. yeah, I think in my heart, from what I'm learning and seeing in the data, I think the macula, it's a little bit like having a tourniquet on your arm. You know, you want to take that tourniquet off. The retina is not getting, it's not in a metabolically healthy situation when it's detached. So yes, what do we do about it? I suppose we have to think about techniques which we can employ, employ quickly. And we have to think about regional collaboration of services so that there is a weekend service you know, perhaps as time goes by, it will not be acceptable to have no access to a vitro-retinal surgeon across the weekend, you know, as the data mounts. Absolutely agree. We will, we'll have to work on that on the one hand. On the other hand, we can think about other techniques like pneumatic retinopexy, uh, all the things which can be done. And uh, as you as you just proved in your last papers, they're very, very successful. I, mean, I think that's the thing. I think we do have to consider that in the sense that, you know, if you want to do a scleral buckle on someone, they, they at least probably need to be starved and have an anesthetic and need an operating room. Most pneumatic retinopexies, macula on or off, will have their surgery within an hour or two in my department. So that is an advantage of the technique. In some, I can't, I can't say I entirely agree with the strategy, but I know that there are some 
units, some groups that employ the temporizing pneumatic retinopexy because they only have access to operating room on certain days of the week, whereby they put a bubble in and will operate a couple of days later just to get the macula back on. I won't expand too much about anything because I think I may have read this in the course of reviewing a paper, but I mean, there are some groups where they've reported that at the time of subsequent vitrectomy, 90% of the retinas were actually reattached. So I would argue that the word temporizing pneumatic retinopexy has to be used with great care. We should be aiming to do a definitive pneumatic retinopexy and in the event that it is not working, be able to move quickly to a vitrectomy. But I think, yeah, I think there is a role of putting gas in the eye to put the macula back on. It's going to be a great topic for the next podcast, wouldn't it be? Well, I don't know. We just get to the end of our podcast. That's the reason why I'm uh, proposing to do that. I promise not to say the P word. <laughs> I was missing it. I was missing it. It came came up too late. I'm so glad we got the pneumatic retinopexia yes. in the end. It should be the climax. Yes. <laughs> So thank you. I think we are uh, probably at the end of our session now, but it's been great to talk about this very important emerging topic for both our clinical practice. There are so many new research avenues available to us. And yes, the service reconfigurations that will result from these changes. So thank you so much, David, Siggy, Julian. We've had an enjoyable session. Thank you. Thank you. Just thanks a lot. It's really great. And let me extend my thanks as well to uh, our chairs, Siegfried Priglinger and Roxanne Hillier and our faculty, uh, David Royston and Julian Klaas. We are blessed to have such fantastic faculty who 35, 40 minutes later are still enthusiastic about their subject. And uh, it's great to hear you all in such great spirits. Hope you got something out of that. Um, if you would like us to cover something on the podcast, we are all ears. You can email us, podcast at uretina.org. Uh, but for now, that's it from us on Talking You Retina. I'm Jonathan McRae. I'll see you next time.